You know, it's my conviction that a preacher must be very careful not to relay a story as something that actually happened if it didn't. And preachers have a habit of sometimes doing that. And uh, I do have to admit that I'm really not sure whether what I'm going to share with you actually happened or is simply a good story. Uh, but it was told to me in a counseling class over 40 years ago, and it's a really good story. In fact, you may have heard it before because I've shared it numerous times, and no, it's not the white dog, black dog story, okay? A man went to his preacher and said, I need a divorce. I don't love my wife anymore. The preacher told him that ceasing to love someone is not biblical grounds for divorce. And besides, love isn't a feeling, it's an action. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. That's a command. And you can't command someone to feel a certain way. Well, the man responded, I'm sorry, I just can't love her. The preacher said, okay. And turn to Matthew 19, 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. He then told him, if you can't love her as you should a wife, at least love her as a neighbor. After all, she is your closest neighbor. The man said, I can't. We just don't get along. The preacher again said, okay, and turn to Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies. We can't get around the command to love. We can't get around it. But still we ask, how? How can we do it? How are we to love? And I think that's a good question. And it brings me to another story. I'll let you decide whether it's a true story, again, or fiction. A man who was feeling unloved and unloving was browsing in a used bookstore when the title of a book caught his eye, How to Hug. He thought that might be just what he needed. If he could be freer with expressions of affection, that would be a start. He bought the book and took it home, only to discover he had bought a volume from a set of encyclopedias that went from how to hug. Oh, well. <laughs> Come on, that's really good. <laughs> now, if the story was true, the man was obviously disappointed. But the Apostle Paul is not going to disappoint us on matters of love. After all, he's the author of the great love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. And when writing to the Romans... He gives us very practical instructions on how to love. Now, as we've previously noted, Paul moved from believing to behaving in chapter 12. He spent the first 11 chapters of Romans telling us of God's love, making it very clear what God has done for us. And now he tells us how those who have received God's love are to demonstrate that love to others. And he begins in the ninth verse of Romans 12 by saying, Let love be without 
hypocrisy. Make sure your love is sincere. Now, that does not mean you shouldn't act loving unless you feel loving. It is never hypocritical to behave in a loving manner. Love, agape love, is a commitment to acting in a person's best interest. It's treating others as they should be treated, whether you feel like it or not. That's not to say, however, that you should pretend everything is lovely when it isn't. We can't close our eyes to sin or sinful behavior under the pretense of love. So Paul quickly adds, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That may be his way of saying, hate the sin, but love the sinner. You know, love is not blind acceptance of everything. And Paul isn't suggesting that we just embrace everyone and everything. But we are to sincerely love everyone. Our brothers, our neighbors, and our enemies. And Paul is going to tell us how to do it. He begins with our brother. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Have you ever had a family member you didn't like? I'm pretty sure you have. You know, conflicts are bound to arise between family members, and sibling rivalry is for real. But hopefully, you maintained a positive relationship, if for no other reason than your family. Some of the saddest situations I've had to deal with were family members who were alienated for 20 years from each other. That's horrid. That's horrid. We should let the bonds of family hold us together no matter the struggles that we face. And things will happen. Well, Paul tells us we need to stick together as family. He tells us that we need to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And he uses two terms for family love. The word translated be devoted refers to the love a parent has for a child. And brotherly love obviously refers to the love between brothers. Paul is telling us, to be devoted to one another in the church as a parent would be to his or her child. That's the kind of affection and devotion we're to have for one another. And it comes from the realization that we really are family. And brotherly love should go beyond a warm handshake on Sunday morning. We are to actually consider each other brothers and sisters. We don't use that term a lot. It sounds antiquated, but the reality is there. 
Through Christ, we have been adopted back into the family of God, and we are now brothers and sisters. And this is our family group right here. We're to be devoted to one another. And Paul says we are to give preference to one another in honor. We are to highly esteem one another. Now, it's not clear whether Paul means we are to esteem one another more than we esteem ourselves or that we are to try and outdo one another in showing honor. But either way, we are to honor our brothers and sisters. We are to respect them. We are to esteem them, not shoot them in the foot or the back. And then as families have historically done, and hopefully even those who don't live on a farm still do, we work together. Now, if you know the Hunley farm, those kids know how to work. Right, Grace? Do I hear an amen? Let's hear an amen. Amen. Yeah, amen. That's yeah. <laughs> a good thing sometimes. You know, grandparents have a way of going, that's too much. But that's grandparents, and we can do that. But families are supposed to work together. Isn't that true? They're supposed to have jobs. They're supposed to, to, to function as a unit. Together, we are to serve the Lord. And you don't show love for your brother by lagging behind. Paul uses that term. By expecting your brother to carry your load of the work. You know, statistically, they say what? 10% of the people in the church do 90% of the work. And that's probably true. Shouldn't be true. Shouldn't be true. Paul has already made it very clear that we all have a job to do in the body of Christ. And now he tells us to make sure that we do it. Don't sit back and expect someone else to do your job. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful in serving the Lord. If you have a responsibility, meet it enthusiastically, fervent, he says, in spirit. Whether it's teaching a class or working in the nursery or ushering on Sunday morning. If you have a responsibility, meet it. In doing so, you not only show love for the Lord, you show love for your brother who has to take up the slack if you don't do your part. We show love for each other by working together. And as family, Paul says, be devoted to prayer. Pray for each other. And just talk, talk to your heavenly Father together. That's what enables us to rejoice in hope. We know what's coming. That also enables us to persevere in tribulation because our brothers and sisters are praying with us. They're there for us. But we don't even stop then at just spiritual things. In addition to being there for each other spiritually, we're to be there for each other physically. Demonstrate your love for your brother by contributing to the needs of the saints, Paul says. That's each other. By sharing what you have. And by practicing hospitality, opening your home. If you see a brother in need, move to meet the need. Open your schedule. Open your pocketbook. Open your home. That's how we show love to family. 
So that's how we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But love doesn't stop when we leave the church. You also need to know how to love your neighbor. He continues. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, I've got to admit, the divisions between loving your brother, your neighbor, and your enemy may be more in my mind than in Paul's. Some don't even see the theme of love running through all these verses. They they see nothing more than a loose collection of ethical imperatives here. But I think love is the theme of these verses. And I think there's a shift in focus between verses 13 and 14. You know, while it's true, someone in the church can persecute us. And when they do, it's the most painful of all, as David noted in Psalm 55. Most persecution comes from the world. So the question is, how are we to respond to those who don't understand us? Who don't share our commitment to Christ and our values and therefore ridicule or persecute us? Paul simply says, love them. Bless them. Don't curse them. Go ahead, enter into their joy. And their sorrows. Live in harmony with them. That's the way the NIV translates, be of the same mind towards one another. Live in harmony with those in the world. Don't be haughty. Don't think yourself too good or too wise to associate with worldly sinners. You know, we've been sent into the world to seek and to save the lost. So we've got to love them. The same way Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. Now, it's not easy. It's so natural to want to strike back, to curse those who curse us. And it's not easy to want good things to happen to people who really don't deserve it. But if we'll just remember that we didn't deserve what we got, that God reached out and touched us and loved us while we were pretty unlovable, we ought to be able to do the same for our neighbor who also needs to know Christ. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. But we are to be in the world. We have a role to play. And our neighbor gives us a prime opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. We need to take it. But love doesn't stop there either. We also need to know how to love our enemy. Continuing verses 17 through 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, 
but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think we've gone beyond just loving someone who doesn't understand us and picks on us here. We've gone all the way to loving our enemy, loving someone who is actually trying to destroy us, someone who is evil, and evil does exist. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We are never justified in treating others the way they treat us. If what someone is doing is wrong, it doesn't become right if we do it to them. Wrong is wrong. Evil is evil. We are to respect what is right in the sight of all men, and we do all know what is right. God has planted within us a sense of right and wrong, so we do know what's right. Everyone knows what's right. We don't always do it. Sometimes our environment hardens us to understanding of what's right. But we do know. We don't always do it, though. And we're never justified in doing what's wrong. You can't say, well, I didn't know. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. We're never justified in doing what's evil. In fact, Paul says it's our responsibility to do all we can to be at peace with all men. Now, that is a huge challenge. As far as it is possible, we're to be at peace with all men. Our enemy should never be able to be our enemy because of what we did to him, at least not intentionally or maliciously. And we must do everything in our power to make amends if we are at fault. And by no means do we seek our own revenge. God will punish the evildoer if punishment is called for. Now, as we'll see in chapter 13, he may use governmental authorities as his minister to bear the sword and to bring wrath upon one who practices evil, but we are never to take matters into our own hands. Instead, our personal response to those who do evil is to show them love. And Paul tells us how. If our enemy is hungry, we're to feed him. If he's thirsty, we're to give him a drink. In doing so, Paul says, we will heap burning coals upon his head. Now, he's quoting Proverbs 25 here, and we're really not sure what it means to heap burning coals on someone's head. Now, some take the coals as symbols of God's fiery judgment. But others suggest the coals are a burning conscience that brings shame to the evil person because we didn't retaliate. 
It's even been noted that there was an ancient Egyptian ritual where a penitent would carry burning coals on his head as evidence of the reality of his repentance. And I think that's the idea here. Paul is saying, if we'll do good to the one who is doing evil, there's a chance we can bring him to repentance. And that is our objective. We're not to be overcome by evil. We are to overcome evil with good. And, obviously, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to make him a friend. So we love our enemies practically by doing good for them. This is big stuff. And it's doubtful that we will be able to do any of it unless we've let Jesus come into our heart. Only then will we actually have spiritual brothers and sisters to love and with whom to serve. Only then will we be able to bless those who curse us because we'll understand where they're coming from, because we've been there and we've been blessed. And only then will we be able to do good for our enemies, knowing that if vengeance is needed, God will take care of it. We don't have to. That's how we love our brother, our neighbor, and our enemy. We love them all through the love of Christ. And if we don't have that love, we get it by inviting Jesus into our heart and letting him love us. Now, if you're loved by him, you can love anyone. He can enable you to do what would be impossible to do without him. He can enable you to love an irritating family member, a troublemaking neighbor, and even an out-and-out enemy. But you've got to turn your heart over to him before he can do it. The only way we can love in this fallen, sinful world, the only way we can even love within the context of the church, is to let Jesus come into our heart. I pray you've done it.